You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. George Werthner is a professional photographer, writer, and ecologist. He's written more than two dozen books on natural history and other environmental topics. He's currently the Ecological Projects Director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology and the Executive Director of Public Lands Media. Werthner has visited hundreds of mountain ranges around the West, more than 380 wilderness areas, more than 180 national park units, and every national forest west of the Mississippi. Thus, there are very few people as qualified to be a co-author of a new paper released in Bioscience with two other Rewilding Leadership Council members, Reed Noss and Eileen Christ. Entitled Rewilding the American West, the paper is an authoritative answer to the Biden administration's call to conserve, connect, and restore the lands, waters, and wildlife upon which we all depend. The idea behind it was to take advantage of the Biden administration's proclamation or announcement that they want to protect 30% of the United States land area by 2030. And, um, you know, that's a very ambitious project. And of course, uh, uh, depending upon how you define what's protected, it it may or may not uh, rise to what some people's expectations are. So we wanted to have something out there that uh, could set a sort of, you might say, a bar or a goal that would be scientifically defensible and at the same time uh, actually get us partway to that 30-30 goal. The idea was to look at two species, uh, wolves and, and beaver, that are in their own way, individual ways, what we would call keystone species. In other words, they they influence the ecosystem more than they're just their individual influence, you might say. They, they, they set the stage for a whole lot of other species to react to them and, and be uh, affected by their presence. So the first thing was to sort of delineate lands that were suitable for wolves, large enough to sustain viable wolf populations, but with corridors between the larger uh, land areas so that there could be some genetic exchange between each of these reserves. And when that was done for the West, we came up with 11 areas proposed as reserves for wolves to try to uh, establish viable populations back on the landscape of wolves. Uh, The next thing to add in was to promote the restoration of beaver. And beaver are, you might say, water engineers. Uh, They uh, have all sorts of influences on on rivers in multiple ways. For example, uh, by creating their beaver dams, they slow the water, which reduces, of course, erosion during floods. It also, um, across the West, has been responsible for creating lots of wet meadows in the past. And and of course, a lot of that 
wet meadow creation has been lost because beaver have been eliminated from so many watersheds or greatly reduced. And another thing that they do, of course, is um, with the water impounded, it slowly seeps into the ground and helps to maintain water flow during the you know later part of summer seasons when when uh, you have less rainfall. So it makes a steadier flow in streams, which would have benefits, for example, for endangered salmon and and trout around the West and and other endangered fish. Um, you know, four fifths of the native fish in the West are listed or candidates for listing under the Endangered Species Act. So this is not an insignificant thing to try to uh, reestablish um, better water flows and better uh, water quality by allowing beavers to do their uh, thing. And, and so then the next step we did was to look at endangered species and try to see um, what was the main proximate causes of species endangerment. Uh, in other words, were they uh, endangered because of hunting? Were they endangered because of, of logging? Were they endangered because of uh, livestock raising or whatever? And it turns out, not too surprisingly, <laughs> in the West, uh, more species are affected by livestock raising than any other factor. The next thing was to decide uh, where those endangered species were. And the, uh, of the 11 reserves, the um, Mogollon Plateau and Southern Colorado, uh, Northern New Mexico, Southern Rockies had the most overlap with endangered species. That is the reserves that we have chosen based on wolves and, and uh, restoration of ecosystems. Uh, those are the ones that had the most endangered species, which is not surprising given that you have more species further south than you would in the north where, you know, glaciation eliminated a lot of habitat in the past. And most of the species come back are more similar further north than in the south where they've had more time to sort of biologically diverge. And, uh, and also because a lot of these species are connected to water, um, the southwest uh, and, and its aridness tends to mean that you're going to have more water-dependent species that are are at risk. So that was the sort of the general uh, plan. And um, after we mapped all, all this, uh, we uh, and realizing, of course, that livestock grazing was the major impact, we are advocating that livestock grazing be terminated on these areas. It would be about 29% of the Western United States public lands. And we would do that through a permit buyout proposal where um, ranchers would be paid uh, a um, compensation based on the animal unit months or the amount of forage that they are permitted to graze on public lands. And I hasten to add that grazing on public lands is a privilege and not a right. And so we're under no obligation to pay for anything. However, uh, realizing that um, many of these ranchers have come to depend upon the public lands uh, and that they are um, uh, <laughs> partly have a lot of political power, the best thing was is to try to provide some sort of off-ramp that would uh, allow them to uh, either buy another 
more private land or, or just retire or whatever. I really like how this paper starts out and it and it's very, very smart. It's throwing the administration's call or challenge of conserving, connecting and restoring lands, waters and wildlife upon which we all depend. And I mean, they're talking about rewilding, whether they know it or not, when the administration is, is saying that, boy, what a challenge and boy, how you all have answered it. Yeah, well, and partly is that is as I mentioned at the very beginning, was because they're sort of ambiguous about how they define, you know, conserved or protected lands. And some people would say, well, we're going to have logging as protected lands, grazing as protected lands. And, uh, you know, that uh, that really doesn't pass muster with a lot of, you know, the more conservation-minded biologists and ecologists. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we wanted to at least get something out there that would question you know protect lands from resource extraction for the most part and you know and i i hasten to add what i'm saying here is mostly my views i can't speak for all the authors who contributed to this uh, but you know in my view i would see these reserves being uh, areas where most natural resource extraction would cease um you know whether that's livestock raising whether that's logging whether that's oil and gas development etc and so that would certainly, if that were the case, uh, really help to get the Biden administration to its goals that, uh, in, in a way that really is an effective way to protect biodiversity and help deal with climate warming and change. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. On an individual pond level, it is very impactful, but what are we talking about for the entire area if, if beavers are brought back in a significant way? Well, the best way I can answer that is, you know, I've done a lot of reading of the journals of early Western uh, travelers, uh, fur trappers, etc. And uh, one that really stands out in my mind, because I've read the Lewis and Clark journals numerous times, but when they were crossing the Gallatin Valley, which is where Bozeman, Montana is located, they were complaining the whole time about how the whole valley was just dammed up with beaver dams. And, and, and of course, they were, they were traveling uh, you know, by um, horse at that point. And so they were having to, you know, skirt around these large uh, areas of wetlands. And, and, uh, and they, they mentioned that, you know, the, the whole valley was just like one big beaver dam. And that's just one, one example. But um, many of the streams in the West um, were covered uh, with beaver colonies. And, uh, and, and and all the way downstream on a lot of these things, all the tributaries that led into even the major rivers like the Yellowstone and the Missouri, et cetera, um, all had, had beaver along them. So uh, the, the trapping period 
um, eliminated beaver from a lot of those places. In fact, uh, an interesting aside, just to tell a historical thing, uh, uh, Peter Skeen Ogden, for which Ogden, Utah is named, uh, was hired by the Hudson's Bay Company, which had a post at, what, at Fort Vancouver, which is Vancouver, Washington today. And the Hudson's Bay Company saw trappers from the Americans uh, being as competition for their sort of fur empire. So Peter Skeen Ogden was hired by the Hudson's Bay Company and was told to go out and trap as many beavers he could uh, between the Rockies and the Pacific to try to make a beaver death zone or whatever you want to phrase it. I don't know how they phrase it. But the idea was, if there's no beaver there, we won't have to worry about the Americans taking over Oregon and Washington. And, and, and that was the fear of the British government at the time, is that they would lose those uh, colon, uh, that, that land that was under control of Hudson's Bay Company at the time, but lose it to Americans. So they were trying to uh, eliminate all the beavers. So that was a, that was a very common thing uh, across the West during the fur trapping era. And then since that time, uh, there's a lot of antagonism towards beaver from some people who, you know, ranchers don't want to see their irrigation ditches dammed up and so forth. So we have had beaver removed from a lot of the landscape where they once were. And uh, so uh, the restoration of beaver is a lot, has a lot to do with the restoration of aquatic ecosystems, which then therefore has a lot to do with the restoration and recovery of many, many species that are dependent on water. That is a sign of a powerful species that <laughs> had affected policy and planning for how to control literal territory uh, politically. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, it was, you know, the, the, the fur period, which didn't last that long in the West. I mean, it started in the uh, 1600s on the Easter, East Coast. But in the West, uh, probably by the 1840s, beaver were getting scarce enough that it wasn't economical in a lot of places for them to trap anymore. And, um, uh, you know, they would come back a couple of years later and, and there would, you know, be some recovery, but continuously being exploited like that meant that they were uh, taken out of many drainages. And, and, and it's hard for us to imagine today because, uh, you know, there's this whole thing, a uh, term that I and others have used called landscape amnesia. And landscape amnesia is that you don't know what the landscape once looked like, so you don't miss it. And, um, you know, our, our riparian areas around the West are so degraded that most people see uh, a stream and assume, you know, I'll, I'll give a worst case scenario. You have a stream that's wide and shallow and has no vegetation along it. Uh, we're used to thinking of that as the norm, when in a lot of cases, those streams would be deep and narrow with willows and other uh, vegetation favored by water growing along them. But because most of us have never seen that kind of place, uh, we just assume that the degraded system is the standard. I was living in Vermont for a short time, and I, um, I, I went to this meeting when I first met, uh, got there, where they were going to talk about what to do on a, on a Vermont fishing game wildlife management area. And the whole thing was we're going to have to log to uh, to get um, uh, young vegetation for white-tailed deer, of course, like there isn't enough white-tailed deer. And um, they um, 
and I, and I thought, you know, man, I can't believe these people. They just all want to, you know, log the forest. And, and finally, this one guy stands up. He says, we have to do something about the old growth crisis. And I thought, oh, my gosh, finally somebody has, you know, seen the light. He says, the problem here in Vermont is we have too many young forests. I mean, sorry, too many old forests. And, uh, and we, uh, we need to cut the trees to get them younger again. And, and the problem in Vermont is that almost all the forests have been logged at one time. So the only place you see big old trees is like in cemeteries or in front of 200-year-old farmhouses. So that's an example of landscape amnesia. People in Vermont have no idea what the forest once looked like, which was predominantly dominated by old-growth trees in the old days. Uh, this network design is is obviously going to rankle most ranchers who have worked really hard to make sure beaver don't come back and make sure wolves don't come back to their uh, area. And they're working on eradication programs in the northern states and can't wait to see more of the reaction. Yeah, well, the point the point is, is that you have to, this is something that is defensible. In other words, you can uh, replicate this uh, using the criteria that we had anyway for size and connectivity and so forth. And you're going to come up with more or less the same reserve areas uh, and uh, for, for wolves. And you can also then look and see what species uh, are listed on Endangered Species Act and, and we'll, that overlap the area that are in these reserves. That's another thing you can replicate. In other words, this is this is something that can be repeated, which is what you want in science. Is something that uh, if if somebody else does it and follows the same methodology, they're going to come up with the same conclusions. And and part of the the goal here is to uh, uh, sort of you might say move the administration in a direction where they use some sort of uh, mechanism or methodology that makes sense and is defensible scientifically. I mean, the, uh, the idea that beaver and wolves affect the landscape and our keystone species is well accepted in the scientific literature. And, um, and, and it's also well accepted that they uh, exist at much lower numbers and uh, in much less of the landscape than they historically uh, existed in. So for both reasons, uh, restoring them has a lot to do with healing the land. And and really, you know, when you have these, it, uh, the wolf issue is a good one because uh, I've been dealing with that for a long time. And a lot of times um, I think it's been understated why conservationists want to see wolves back and why ranchers and some of the, you know, hunters and others maybe don't want to see wolves back. And it's more than just the fact, you know, like take ranching. Wolves really don't take that much livestock. I mean, in the big scheme of things, uh, they're going to lose a lot more livestock to, you know, birthing and poisonous plants and so forth. Uh, the number of animals killed by wolves around the West uh, is pretty insignificant in the big scheme of things. But what wolves represent to ranchers is uncontrollable nature. And and that's what they're fighting all the time. If you're in agriculture, you know, your whole success depends on how well you can cope with, you know, natural uh, opposition, so to speak, insects eating your crops, uh, floods or drought, uh, all sorts of fire, 
that can, um, you know, like in the case of ranchers, maybe a fire that burns up, uh, you know, the forage that you were going to depend on. So wolves are seen as just one more thing that's added to this mix of unpredictable nature. And there's a sense uh, that they can control that unpredictability by eliminating uh, wolves. And on the other hand, I think people like myself um, want to advocate for wolf restoration because we see it as a way to sort of make amends for the past indiscretions and the past abuse of natural areas. And as a way to uh, demonstrate uh, a different attitude towards uh, the land than we've had in the past, uh, an attitude that appreciates uh, natural uh, ecological function and integrity, which is really the only way you get any kind of real stability is, um, is, is by having uh, functioning ecosystems. And the way you get there is by putting as many of the pieces back as you can. And wolves and beaver are part of that, uh, those pieces. Uh, if we go forward maybe 50 years after we've really, really tackled this and done what you would consider a good job, what are we looking at in terms of hope, in terms of what that what that Western area and, and beyond is going to look like and feel like? Well, you know, that, again, that gets back to the landscape of Amnesia. Most of us have no idea what the, the Western landscape could really be like. Uh, but there's a couple of things that you, in what you mentioned that I think is important because if we can accomplish this, it does provide hope. And you got to have some hope. <laughs> yeah. You don't have hope. You throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, I might as well give up and party or something. And I think that this uh, would demonstrate that um, as a society, we can make a collective decision that will change the, our relationship to how we view nature and what we do uh, to the natural world. And so, it, you know, it, even though it's, we'd only be the Western United States, you know, you, what you say is that this is something that's a model that could be emulated in other parts of the world even. I mean, there are predators all over the world that are constantly being killed, whether it's Africa or Asia, or Australia. I mean, we can go down the list. Uh, and, and there's probably equivalent uh, species like the beaver in different types of ecosystems that are, uh, you know, keystone that way. So if we can pull that off here in the Western United States, particularly given the politics of the region, the generally conservative um, politics, then uh, that gives you hope that it could be done other places. And, and then that gives you hope that we can actually pull off some sort of mitigation of our, you know, terrible effect on the planet and make it a better place for everyone not just humans, but all the other life out there that depends on the planet as well. Is there any way that I could like picture George Workner standing next to a rancher that you've butted heads with all your life working together because they've seen the light and they're on board? Um, I think that that's a possibility, although I, I would tend to think, you know, this is the problem when you get finances in it. Um, and any rancher, you know, they're always complaining about how they don't make any money. And, and and there's some truth to it. I mean, raising livestock in the West is really kind of a crazy thing to do. It's just not the, you know, the aridity imposes all kinds of limitations on what you can do. So I, I would suspect, you know, what will happen is people in the ranching community will just say, 
this doesn't, uh, you know, it, especially if the buyout is available, you know, this is this is my chance to get out of this situation because ranching is just a good way to lose money. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, most ranchers, the, the, the thing that, that keeps them in the business is the price of their property has gone up in value. So you can continuously buy against the equity of that ranch land, but it's not really running cattle that makes you any money. I think that, uh, you know, there'll be a decline of ranching around the West, regardless of this program, this might, uh, provide at least the ones that are, uh, within our reserve design, some some opportunity for uh, a decent way out to do something else, whether it's some of the ranchers and farmers in places like California have gone to buy land in places like Kansas and Nebraska and Minnesota because it's just more product, productive and and uh, there's less hassles with other you know uh, people. You know, not liking having your cows, you know, stink up the landscape or whatever. So, you know, that's an option some might take advantage of. As far as hunters, um, you know, it depends upon how enlightened hunters are. Uh, I don't want to say that this is the reason why they su should support wolf restoration. But the truth is, is that in most cases where wolves have been restored, the, 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 the population of elk and deer have increased, not decreased. The, the increase in, in population is not, you know, uniform, of course, and the habitat use, and this is the big thing, the habitat use by those animals has changed in many cases. For example, uh, the elk, when they're being preyed upon by wolves, tend to use steeper terrain and, and stay in more forested areas because wolves are are animals that chase down their prey. And if, you know, they're having to chase an elk through a, a, a lodgepole pine forest with lots of logs on the ground or something like that, it's very difficult. So the habitat use has changed, even though the number of elk and deer in a lot of cases has increased. But the habitat changes also mean that it's, it's harder for hunters to, to find, the, find the elk or the deer. And so some of them are saying, oh, there's less elk and deer here. And in some cases there is, but in a lot of cases, there's just as many or more, but uh, you have to be a better hunter to, uh, <laughs> you, gotta you be know, better success, so to speak, better <laughs> shape and, and know the animals better. Yes. And uh, so the old days of where you would drive around on a dirt road or something and until you shot something, you know, well, maybe you can't do that anymore. Well, what do you think about uh, the next steps? The first step is is doing what you're helping me to do, which is get the word out, so to speak. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to promote it by articles, and some of the other authors are doing exactly what I'm doing, doing interviews and so forth, uh, and trying to get the idea out there. And and I I hasten to add that getting the idea out there is not meaning that we expect immediate results. Um, I mean, that would be wonderful if it did, but um, if you look at how conservation has gone over the decades, uh, usually you have to have some proposal out there that, that takes a while to catch on. I'll, I'll use a simple thing. Uh, the uh, national forests were first set aside as forest reserves. Uh, they were opposed strongly by residents in the western United States. You know, there was all this stuff about locking up resources. Sounds the same as today, actually, in some circles, but locking up resources, you know, it's going to destroy the economy, blah, blah, blah. 
And yet, I think if you were to do a survey of Western residents and say, well, we're, we're going to get rid of all the national forests in the West, you, you would be overwhelmingly voted down. Now, we have debates about how those national forests should be managed, but almost everybody today accepts that having national forests are a good thing uh, for the country as well for the region. And I suspect that that transformation uh, will happen with this reserve proposal too, where the idea that we, um, which may be initially uh, opposed, may gain acceptance. Okay, I've been involved in a, a, a thing for a couple of decades now uh, called Restore the North Woods. I, I'm the board president of it, and I helped to start it. I was one of the founders of it. And our goal was to create a national park in the Maine woods. And we had a very ambitious plan, uh, over a 3 million acre national park, which doesn't exist yet. But we have succeeded with the help of many people, including uh, Burt's Bees, Roxanne Quimby, who purchased a bunch of land in the Maine Woods, and that was part of the whole thing because Maine had very little public land. You had to buy these lands from timber companies. But anyway, she bought these lands and donated to the U.S. Uh, as, as, with the idea that it would be part of the national park system managed uh, by the Park Service. And the time during the time when we were promoting this idea of a of a national park unit in the Maine Woods. Almost all the congressional delegation and the governor, et cetera, to, uh, in Maine expressed opposition to creating any park there, uh, including the uh, two senators from Maine today, Angus King and, and, and Collins, Susan Collins. Well, just last week, Angus King and Susan Collins sponsored legislation to expand the Katahdin Woods and Water National Monument, almost uh, uh, increasing it by 50%. And, and, and the point of this is here are two politicians who, you know, to one degree or another, oppose the whole idea of having any park at all. And today they're sponsoring legislation to expand it. And so, I, you know, I've seen this over and over and over again. So I'm never dissuaded by somebody who says, oh, well, this is impossible or people will never support this. Because I've seen so many examples where, uh, you know, over time, if it's a good idea, which I think parks and preserves and wilderness and so forth are, uh, people people find that they are a positive thing and a, and a benefit, and um, to themselves and for you know even reasons that we would say are, are uh, non-economical or otherwise, you know, just the intrinsic value of having protected lands makes a lot of people feel good, and. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's a benefit. That's how I look at this. This this may not happen immediately, but we put the idea out there. And over time, I think people will come to accept it, not only accept it, but embrace it and promote it further. And that gets back to the question you had originally, you know, what's this going to do for the planet? Well, if it gets embraced and promoted, it may be adopted in a lot of other places. Uh, a good example of that is Yellowstone National Park. That was the first national park in the world. Or, and there are national parks in 100 and some, 140, 150 countries around the world. Why is that? Well, because it, it serves a purpose in, in, uh, in the sort of the way people, you know, look at the landscape. And so it was emulated around the world. But it had to be done someplace first. And once it's in one place, it's much more likely to be adopted in other places. And that would be my hope. 
this isn't the first Wildlands design in the West or no. You've you've proven your point, which is it should be replicatable. So uh, with newfound interest and and new interest period from an administration that's never put, uttered the words that they are uttering now, 30 by 30 and connectivity. And we've never had that kind of a benefit, you know, with the work that we do. You get to see over all of these decades, the same landscapes keep showing up. Uh, some of them are a little smaller because they've been whittled away and others are bigger because they've been added to. You're doing, you're showing that, you know, this can be done. I think I saw a title somewhere that somebody said the answer, it was referencing the paper here. The answer to our problems in the West is to flood the West with wolves and beavers. And I was like, where did that come from? Because I don't <laughs> see that anywhere in the paper, the, those exact words, but that's yeah. what somebody got out of it. And you know, that's that's a really cool thing to see. I just like that you're proving again, once again, and everybody involved with this uh, are proving that uh, this can be done and we can look at it in all kinds of different angles and it still points to sound, solid science. Yeah, and, 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 and the choice of wolf and beaver was to make it somewhat simple uh, to understand. And because these two particular species have an out, outsized influence on the landscape, um, they are good ch choices. In other words, uh, you are going, as I, I think that we identified in the paper, 92 endangered species that would uh, overlap with these reserves. And presumably most of them would benefit from the creation of these reserves. For example, you know, uh, among the species are various endangered fish or amphibians like various frogs uh, and toads. Um, you know, so uh, I'm using those two as an example, fish and, and amphibians that would benefit from beaver uh, re restoration without having to do anything directly for those species. You improve their quality of their habitat. And the hope is, of course, that they would uh, start to flourish and, and also recover. The, particularly with the wolf, you know, they're, they're a wide ranging species. And because top predators, any predators exist at much lower population than say, um, you know, herbivores like elk and deer, uh, you have to have pretty large areas to sustain a viable population in the long run. So picking wolves as, as one of your species to focus on accomplishes, uh, you know, the goal of having a, a larger area protected and that larger area is, is going to be a, a net you might say that you know you throw over the landscape that pulls in a lot of other species that will ultimately benefit from that uh, protected landscape to find the maps and the paper and everything referenced here and surely some other things that george will provide me uh in the extra credit section you need to go to rewilding.org pod and look for episode 94 and you'll find all the resources that go with this, the maps um, and the uh, the actual study itself and George's links to really get into this, do a deep dive and go and take advantage of George's recommendation. We need people talking about this. So share this podcast and keep finding new ways to talk to people about rewilding, referencing uh, this today as an example of what you're talking about uh, or any of the other resources, of course, at rewilding.org. George, thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us and to explain all this. It's really quite exciting. 
Well, thank you, Jack. I mean, it to me it 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 makes me feel a little optimistic that we're we're talking about this, just to even be talking about it. And and if we can get some of this implemented, as I said, if if even one state in the West were to adopt this as a policy, I think other states would see the advantages and and follow through. So. Uh, you know, it could happen in stages. It could happen, you know, state by state. It could happen at a federal level. Uh, it's hard to say, but you have to have the idea, the basic idea, and then how it's implemented and, and the fine points we can, you know, worry about and discuss later. But uh, you got to have something to, uh, you know, throw out there as your goal. And that's what this is. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.